now, analysis and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops. Uh, blue skies, sunshine. A uh, lot to talk about on the show today. We're going to touch on an, an inspiring story of chronic pain, addiction, and recovery. Uh, we'll also talk, as we do every Tuesday, with Jeffrey Myers, touching on American politics. And Sharon Gregson, many will know as the face of the $10 a day child care movement, uh, is in studio with us to finish off the show. But first, a big Green Party victory in Nanaimo last night, a federal by-election held there. And the uh, for the second time in Canadian history, a Green Party candidate coming out on top in a federal riding. Uh, the first one, of course, is Elizabeth May, both, uh, by the way, on Vancouver Island. To get a little bit of insight into what exactly happened in Nanaimo last night, real pleasure to welcome to the program Richard Zussman from Global BC. Richard, how are you? Great, Shane. I thought every day was a beautiful day in Kamloops. It is. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. When you, every uh, when time you... I've been to, in Kamloops, it's been a beautiful day. By the way, when are you here next? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm sort of, as you mentioned on Twitter, I'm sort of going around Kamloops on a, a book tour that I'm going on at the end of the month. Yeah. But I'm hoping I will be there uh, at some point uh, before you depart. Mm. Uh, Richard, uh, interesting by-election last uh, last night in Nanaimo. Uh, as I mentioned off the top, a Green Party uh, with a big win. A uh, bit of a sea change from 2015. Paul Manley, 19%, well behind sort of a three-big-party tussle there, and he was trailing. Uh, not so much the case last night. Uh, people went green. Now, by-elections are often odd in different animals, uh, but as you kind of read the tea leaves with a fall election looming, um, what happened? What, how come people went green in Nanaimo last night? Yeah, a few different things. So obviously the Greens were able to pull a lot of votes from the Liberals. The Liberals had a pretty huge surge in Nanaimo Ladysmith, like they did in a lot of places in British Columbia in the last federal election. Their support diminished uh, immensely, basically evaporated, disappeared. Uh, Michelle Corfield, the Liberal candidate, finishing way back with 4,400 votes. Paul Manley, the winner, had 15,000. Uh, so the Greens were able to hit uh, Liberal voters and convince them that you know the, they could provide effective representation in Ottawa. Another part of it, as you mentioned, it's a weird by-election, but because we have this federal general election coming up in October. I was describing it last night on uh, Global as a mulligan election, that voters could try on for size what they think of the Greens. Do they like being represented by a Green? The fact that there's only two people in that caucus, can Paul Manley be effective for the community? And they can decide if that works for them um, and if it doesn't, they can change their minds in October when the voters will go back to the polls everywhere in Canada. If they like what the Greens bring, it could be a huge boost for the party, not just here in Nanaimo, but in uh, many other ridings, possibly on Vancouver Island, and if the Greens get ambitious beyond that. But we could start seeing the sort of uh, trend towards trusting that the Greens can deliver, even though you know they're likely never going to form government, they still can have a voice in opposition. How much of that vote do you think is sort of 
a stick in the eye of the traditional big three parties. I mean, I get the sense there's a lot of people out there who bought into a lot of the promises that Justin Trudeau made uh, in 2015 that are that are not very happy with what they've seen in actuality. The Conservatives uh, don't seem to be alluring to a lot of new voters out there, and then the NDP or the NDP. Uh, do you think there's, there's sort of, um, I don't know what the word is, sort of a, a backlash where people are going, you know what, uh, screw the big three, I need, I need a new party, and they're looking at the Greens. I think that's part of it. And the People's Party of Canada will also pick up some of those votes. Jennifer Clark finished fifth yesterday with 1,200 votes. But for a fringe right-wing party, that's pretty good in a place like Nanaimo Ladysmith. So we could potentially see that party siphoning off votes from the Conservatives. It was really interesting to me. The NDP ran a full-page cover spread in the local newspaper in Nanaimo, and there was not one picture of Jagmeet Singh. There was a big picture of John Horgan. There were pictures of Sheila Malcolmson, the former MP, now MLA. Uh, and there were obviously pictures of Bob Chamberlain, the NDP candidate, not one of Jagmeet Singh. And this party, I think, has got a leadership issue. I chatted with Jagmeet Singh recently, and he said, you know, things have changed for him since he won his seat in the House of Commons representing Burnaby South. But I feel like that party needs to figure out what they represent, who they are, um, you know, going out lefting the Liberals is going to be challenging. So the NDP needs to find a little bit of a home. And I think voters are, are seeing that as well and trying to figure out alternatives beyond, you know, we can't trust Justin Trudeau and the Liberals around SNC-Lavalin. The Conservatives have moved uh, too far, in some cases, right. Or maybe for some voters, they've moved too far to the centre. So there's different options there. I think voters are thinking a lot about alternatives. You raise a very good point around that. Is there any provincial implications? Do the, do the provincial NDP look at that riding and say, oh, uh, okay, that's concerning? I don't think so because it was so recently tested in Nanaimo. And in the by-election that was fought here a few months ago, the NDP had a decisive victory and the Greens finished a distant, distant, distant third. I think other than that, the NDP could see this as problematic for them. But I think they are confident in what John Horgan is doing in Victoria. Uh, and I don't think they're fearful of this green wave. And as you and I have talked about, the junior partner and minority governments often struggle the next time around because the voter has a hard time differentiating. They say, well, if these two people stand for the same thing, why don't I vote for the party who's most likely to form government, which is the NDP? So I don't think uh, John Horgan and his brain trusts are going to take much out of uh, last night's results. Okay, so what happens now, uh, in my line of thinking, would be uh, Paul Manley especially, uh, if these candidates are smart and if, uh, if the party's sticking with them into the fall federal election, you celebrate last night, but you wake up tomorrow and go right back to work and you don't stop until the fall election's over. No, and you have a little bit of money to do it now. There'll be a constituency budget for Paul Manley, obviously, to do constituency work, but that helps in terms of getting ads in the local newspaper, being in the local media, all that helps. You raised a really great point at the beginning as well that I didn't get to that ties into this. Paul Manley was the only person on the ballot last night that ran four years ago. His signs were ready. His team was ready. He had a strategy. And in by-elections, it's less about policy and more about people. And he took huge advantage of that. Manley's a well-known name in the his father was an NDP MP a long time ago, but that brand is strong. And I think Paul Manley needs to take that victory last night and start using that to connect with the community, uh, show some deliverables to the community, and it's going to be a huge advantage. It will be much harder to beat him next time than it was to beat him last night, and he won decisively. Like a huge, I think he won by 13 percentage points, 5,000 votes, which is a huge, huge win in a by-election. 
it had the 40% voter turnout. But how vulnerable is he in a federal election, Richard, when, I mean, we don't know how the federal election is going to shape up or form or sort of what the day before voting day will look like as far as polling and stuff, but there's a chance we could see uh, something along a very divisive election where uh, it could be Justin Trudeau or it could be Andrew Scheer. If they're polling really close and it's really tight and suddenly there's that sort of conservative liberal polarization where people get, uh, you know, on one side of that argument or the other get concerned about what the federal government's going to look like. Does that draw votes away from, from the Greens and the NDP at all or no? Sure. No, I think, I think it does as well. So Paul Manley needs to... The fact is there are thousands and thousands of votes that didn't show up last night. And I'm a Ladysmith historically has high voter turnout, 75% in the last general election. Last night was 41%. So you have basically 35,000 people who didn't show up. Those votes need to go somewhere. The sleeper in this run, I think in so many ridings in British Columbia, are the Conservatives. John Hurst had a very solid showing for the party last night. Uh, strong second place finish for the Conservatives. Nanaimo Ladysmith really is the only riding on the island where the Conservatives have a chance. But I think they've got their eyes set on a lot of places um, in this province. Obviously, Kamloops, they need to hold on, considering Terry Lake is now in the race for the Liberals. Uh, Kathy McLeod from the Conservatives needs that one desperately. The party will be focused there. But I think they've got their eyes on a lot of Metro Vancouver ridings where people are staring at record-breaking gas prices, uh, as well as other concerns about Justin Trudeau's trustworthiness. And so the Conservative Party should look at last night's results and think, that's pretty good, we need to build on that, and it could be a boost for that party moving forward. Richard, always a pleasure. Thanks for taking some time this morning, and for the love of God, would you give me your beer order? <laughs> Do you want me to tweet it at you? Yeah. I'll tweet it at you right now. Do it. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> okay, thanks, man. Good to talk to you. That's Richard Zussman. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, an inspiring story of chronic illness, addiction, and ultimately recovery. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. The voice of your community. You're listening to Shane Woodford on 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by uh, Dana Lee. How are you, Dana? I'm so great today. How are you? I am well. You're really Good. excited. But uh, we wanted to bring you in because uh, a lady named Shannon Ainsley wrote a really wonderful article that's centered on you and your story of uh, essentially addiction, recovery, battling with some kind of chronic illness that uh, that you didn't know what was and, and you, in your journey, sort of self-medicated using drugs and alcohol. Off the air, I kind of asked you what was going on with this chronic illness, but it looks like, you know, there might be a light at the end of the tunnel. You might have figured out what this thing is. Why don't we start there? What's going on? What are you dealing with? Oh, wow. Well, it's been so long and the array of symptoms I've dealt with over the years has changed so much. Yeah. So as of late, I have ruled out major diseases. So like MS and ALS and all those things, which is so great. Um, but we're still left without answers, of course. However, I'm seeing a naturopath who might have an answer for me. There's a possibility I have Lyme disease, which would make a lot of sense. You know, that disease mimics a lot of things. So, right. so I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. But honestly, the last few weeks, I was in a wheelchair like a week ago. I've just changed my attitude about this, and it's it's really helping. Yeah, you've got a, a little stroller thing in yeah. here, but I mean, you look like a 27-year-old young lady, and, I, and so, yeah. I know on the outside, I look I look decent, but yeah. on the inside some days, oh man, it's yeah. hard to get out of bed. Uh, in reading Shannon's column, there's a thing about where you went from 
being sort of the teenager in the party years, which I think we can all identify with. We've yeah. all been there for sure, right? Uh, and then you transition into sort of your early 20s, and then something changes there, and you kind of fall more into the hardcore drug scene. I mean, what changed? You were, you've been dealing with this since you were eight years old as far as this chronic illness. Mm -hmm. But what changed in your early 20s that you kind of shifted into this new gear? It's all environment, right? Like, I, I left home, and I experienced a bunch of new and exciting things. Mm. And sometimes we don't realize that our environment makes such an impact on our being. And so while I was there in the city I lived in, I was, I was getting sick still and things were changing and I just found I was having all this fun and finding ways to cope. <laughs> yeah. But then after a while, it wasn't fun anymore. Like I just wanted to be high and drunk all the time because I didn't know else, how else to deal. And that was my environment I was in that was surrounding me all the time. So moving home and trying to figure that out again, I just fell back into that same mentality of the old environment I was in. Yeah. you know, the ways to cope. So that's how it started. It just progressed. It's almost like you're battling two illnesses because you've got this thing you're trying to corral, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to cope with and deal with and figure out and, and you're, and you're self-medicating. But um, experts will say addiction is its own illness. Right? Totally. Uh, so how did you get, a, how did you cope with that one? Because a lot of people grapple with addiction and some people, <laughs> I mean, to some degree, it's a lifelong battle. Mm -hmm. Some people can't ever get out. I'm looking at you right now. Uh, you look great. You looks like you've brought yourself out of sort Thank of you. a hard point in your life. There's lots of people out there who would think, you know, man, you know, I try so hard to get to that place and I can't. Right? So what, what was your sort of, you know, moment that you kind of took yourself and went, I can't do this anymore? Honestly, it was, uh, it was such a battle after I went to treatment that I just, I was kept thinking the whole time, I can still live this way. This is making me feel good. But but only for a short time, and that's the problem with addiction and alcoholism and all that is it's that it's an immediate feeling of relief. Yes. And the last time I relapsed, it was such a long feeling of relief, but at the end, I was so sick, and I said, I actually just told my parents everything I had done that year. All the bad things I had done, I cleansed myself of all the negativity. Mm. And the next day I woke up, and I just said, I don't want to feel like that anymore, like... It was scary because I would, I would have died if I continued down that road, you know, because addiction is a disease. It's, I have it and runs in my family on both sides. It's more common than we think. Yeah. You know, getting to that point where you can take a step back and really look at your life, then you can figure it out. How long have you been, uh, been clean for? I will be a year and a half in about 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not keeping track. Oh, no, yeah. 20 days, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. <laughs> so, thank that's, you. That's a major accomplishment. Thank you. It feels, yeah, yeah. I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> yeah. How has your life been now that you've kind of, you've closed the door on drugs and alcohol? Has it, I mean, you're still dealing with the original thing, right? Mm -hmm. Is that made that easier? Is it harder to cope because you don't have these mechanisms that you've been dealing with? In the past? How's that working out? Well, the thing is, is since I was self-medicating, I, I wasn't fully feeling my my symptoms, right? Because right. when you're drunk, you feel good. Yeah. So when I got sober, I actually, my symptoms seemed to get worse because I was noticing them more. So I had to just find other things to do that made me feel good. So I started working out a lot. Um, I started eating healthier, changed right. my diet. I lost a bunch of weight. And and I just started, I changed my environment. Honestly, right. I changed the people. I even, I even rearranged my bedroom to make myself feel in, like in a new space. And and I did do meetings and stuff like that for a while, but then I found it just, I needed to do my own way. And I also started helping people. I yeah. started helping people in recovery. That keeps me sober. Every day it keeps me sober. Like I even connected with people online from other like, countries and it, it's, 
if you help somebody else every day, I mean, it helps you. It really does. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your parents, because it sounds like, you know, I'm my little guy's too young to yeah. <laughs> even be exposed to that kind of thing. But I can only imagine in, in my short journey as a parent how difficult it would be to watch you know, <sighs> this child that you have this this deep abounding love for kind of go through <sighs> all this stuff. And it seems like they've been there for you. Mm-hmm. They're the ability to just a moment ago, you said you cleansed yourself to them. Yes. You told them some things that probably they didn't want to hear. But No. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it sounds like you have a good support system and oh. some parents that have kind of been through the meat grinder but are still there for you. What's, tell me a little bit about them. That is one of the most important things I find is, is, is your support system. Like, regardless if it's your parents, siblings, friends. That's why I said in my article is, is reaching out to someone that might be an active addiction too, or, or just that you can trust. So yes, my parents have been, I can't even, it makes me want to cry, express the gratitude I have for my parents because they kept me home. You know, I could have, I could have left home and, and ended up somewhere else. Right. And yeah. they never gave up. They never gave up. And now though, that I've been getting more sick, unfortunately, I'm seeing that, that hurt in them again, but at least they know I'm happy now. And that's what matters the most. They see me smiling every day instead of seeing me like, hungover, feeling sorry for myself. So my, my whole family, my support system has been the most amazing part of this journey, honestly. Yeah, do you have siblings or no? I have an older brother, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's, yeah. The, what's it been like for him? I, it, good, like he's my best friend, you know. Yeah. We, he's, he's very supportive. He lives just down the road from me and it's, ugh, I love my family so much. <laughs> what's, what's been the hardest aspect of recovery? Because, um, you know, again, you have this sort of twofold illness you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. When you use a crutch for a really long time, you know, uh, it's hard to suddenly just throw the crutch away and stand on your own two feet. So mm-hmm. what's, what's been the hardest part of the last year and a half? Well, yeah, crutch for sure. Because, I mean, even people that don't have full-blown alcoholism, we use things like drugs and alcohol as a crutch, even if it's not a problem every day, right? Yeah. So definitely finding, like I started smoking a lot more, that's for sure. I used that as a crutch for a while. And then I'm realizing, though, yeah, you just have to find other things, like I said, to use. So I, I honestly used exercise as a crutch to deal with how I was feeling until, of course, my body started <laughs> saying, you can't do this anymore. But every day I just, I find something small through the day that brightens my mood and I go with it. Yeah. I have to. Was stigma part of it? I mean, obviously, oh. when, you're a, when you're a younger lady and you're dealing with this thing, you know, in high school when, mm-hmm. you know, we were all aware of the, the sort of stereotypes and the judging that goes on back then. And you probably felt to some degree like, oh, you know, here I am. I don't, I can't take part in this or I, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not being, you know, viewed as an equal to people around me and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And then you go into the whole drug world where there's a whole separate stigma, right? Like people are like, oh, addicts. And we all, right? you know, people have that thing about that sort of downtown east side yes. person, right? That's what an addict is to mm-hmm. most people, but that's really not what they are. So how much did the stigma play a role in, in the whole thing for you? Well, I, you know, I learned so much about addiction, yeah. getting sober. Because during active addiction, you don't think about those things because you don't really care about them because all you're caring about is, is yourself. Yeah. So getting sober, I, the stigma, oh man, like mm-hmm. I thought exactly what you said. People immediately think of homeless people, junkies, which essentially are the same thing as addicts, you know, adrenaline junkies, all that. Anything that we do on a day-to-day that we need is an addiction in reality, yeah. you know, smoking cigarettes and lots of other things we do in our day-to-day. So you're right. Addicts are people. People, we could all know somebody in our lives that has an addiction that they don't talk about. It could be a professional, it could be your best friend, but 
people that are, you know, more like I was, like lots of people knew I like to, you know, have fun and stuff. Yeah, for sure. So then, yes, there's a stigma on that. And it's, it sucks that people don't know enough about addiction to, to talk about it. Nobody wants to talk about it because yeah. they associate it with bad things. What's next for Dana Lee? Well, I'm going to get better. I know it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a diagnosis soon. And then I'm just going to continue doing my video blogs, which I'm going to start up soon. And I want to just help people by spreading messages about how to make yourself better, little things at a time, you know, and, and talk about recovery. So I just, that's next for me. I just want to help. I want to help everyone else. <laughs> you talked a little bit in your article about wanting to sort of be a, a drug addiction counselor. Or yes. is, are you doing anything to kind of move into that field? or I haven't looked into schooling or anything yet. Um, the counselor I was seeing, though, in my first year of recovery told me I should look into doing it. So I said, okay, well, my counselor says I should try. So when I get, when I start getting better, I think I want to look into schooling. Um, okay. It's just focusing on that right now might add stress. Stress makes me sicker, so. Life's a journey, right? It's one step at a time. And then exactly. when you throw on some of the weight that you're dealing with, it can, you know, those steps can be more difficult. But mm -hmm. you've pulled yourself up and, and I wish you total success in the future. Thank you. And I hope your journey continues and you stay clean and, and that life kind of falls into place because it sounds like you've had some some rough things happen and maybe hey. it's time some good juju falls your way. So. It's all what you make it though, right? Yeah, it's totally. all what you make it. Your life can be bad if you want it to be bad. So Yeah, well, I'm, I'm inspired. I mean, Thank you're, you're you. There and, <laughs> and you're brimming with positive energy and stuff. And I hope people out there who may be battling with something similar or Coming to grips with something can listen to this and get some hope and inspiration. So me too. Thank you. I'm mm -hmm. so happy we did this today. <laughs> Dana, thanks for coming. I appreciate okay, it. Okay, thank you. And that was Dana Lee with an inspiring story about uh, dealing with chronic pain, illness, uh, addiction, and ultimately recovery and fighting for a path forward. Thanks to her for coming. And we'll take a quick break on the Woodford Show. On the other side, we'll dive into our weekly chat about uh, American politics with TRU's Jeffrey Myers. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Your opinion. Call or text 250-374-5345. Find us on Facebook or on Twitter at Radio NL News. This is Shane Woodford on RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined on the phone as we are every single Tuesday with Jeffrey Myers, lawyer and lecturer up at TRU. Oh, good morning, Shane. Great to be with you as always. Yeah, uh, glad to have you on this week, as uh, as I am every week. Uh, lots to dive into this week, and uh, stuff that both has a legal lens and stuff that just has a constitutional lens and just sort of a general concern. But uh, why don't we start uh, south of the border with Mr. Barr, who's being accused of lying to Congress uh, in some really um, fanciful hair splitting. Uh, I believe he's kind of falling back on this line that he was asked whether he'd been in touch with Robert Mueller's team uh, on Russian interference in the 2016 election, yada, 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 yada. And he said, uh, he said, no, he hadn't. And now he's saying, well, listen, that's because I was talking to Mr. Mueller himself and not his team, which, again, I, I would suggest is some fanciful hair splitting. But uh, uh, what's, uh, what's going on here, Jeff, and, and what's, what are the potential repercussions? Well, he was asked in Congress some weeks ago uh, by a Congressman Chris Christie, who some of your listeners might remember, he was a former governor of Florida, um, about what his contact, whether he had any knowledge that uh, Mr. Mueller himself or anybody at the Mueller team was um, objecting to his sort of summary report 
of the and sort of uh, slow release, as it were, of the uh, Mueller report. And he said that not to his knowledge. And it then came out later on that he'd had uh, to hand a letter from Mr. Mueller, uh, which was subsequently released, as well as perhaps I think, if I recall correctly, had a telephone conversation with him as well, so that he sort of feigned um, not knowing about or uh, uh, this information, where in fact it looks like he did. Uh, so of course the Democrats, led by um, Speaker Pelosi, I think quite properly. Uh, said this is lying to Congress. Lying to Congress, uh, you'll recall, is a federal crime. That's uh, what uh, put Mr. Cohen in jail. Um, and it's very serious for the Attorney General to do that. And the evidence seems pretty clear that he did. And so now he's trying to, like you say, split hairs and say, well, you asked me about whether I spoke to his staff. I spoke to him personally. So, you know, Mr. Mr. Barr has been very, le- I guess, what lay people might call legalistic in terms of using precise lawyerly language to answer questions in the narrowest possible way. And I think the expectations uh, are that he has to remain on the side of you know, honesty and transparency as the chief law enforcement officer of the United States. And I think he might have stepped, uh, despite his deafness, uh, stepped uh, to the wrong side here. And so, yeah, I think this is a this can be the basis, certainly, for um, for impeachment of him, uh, should Congress be willing to pursue it. Yeah, and that is the big question. I know some prominent uh, Democrats have indeed called for impeachment. Whether they pull the trigger is a whole other thing. And then, of course, Mr. Barr uh, could be on the wrong end on another angle with the House Judiciary Committee uh, voting on Wednesday whether or not to hold him in contempt after he failed to cough up or uh, respond to a subpoena on, on putting together an unredacted version of, uh, of the Mueller report. So he's in trouble on several areas. Oh, big time. I mean, that's Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the House uh, Judiciary Committee, um, and basically who's threatening to hold him in contempt for not showing up there, remember, the day after he was submitted to questioning by uh, the Senate. And he had objected primarily on the basis that he didn't want to be questioned by professional um, lawyers working for uh, the uh, for the Judiciary Committee. He preferred to have the amateur hour, have the lawmakers themselves, who with some exceptions obviously are accomplished lawyers, but to sort of have that questioning under staff lawyers. He, he, he backed off from that, particularly after his rough handling, um, particularly by Senator Kamala Harris in the Senate the day before. So now he's in contempt there. And I'll remind your listeners that one of the basis for impeachment, of course, of Richard Nixon was the fact that he refused to comply with subpoena that were issued by Congress. So we're now really back at that point where all of the powers of Congress, which have been sort of eroded over time and the expansion of the presidency is now at a stage where Congress really needs to assert what are originally its oversight powers under the Constitution. And it's going to have to fight hard to see what happens. And again, as I said, the tiebreaker will likely be the judicial branch and there'll be these matters will be litigated. These subpoenas will be litigated all the way to the Supreme Court. So uh, two quick questions on that. Number one, do you think that we're going to see somebody pull the trigger on impeachment hearings against Mr. Barr? And two, uh, if he is in fact found in contempt, what what kind of punishment is there? I mean, what kind of teeth does that have? Uh, it can have fairly significant teeth. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is there's a jail underneath the Capitol where people can be um, jailed. The, the Congress has an enormous power of control and oversight over the executive, and if it wants to use it, it can. Uh, obviously, it's unlikely that you know Mr. Barr is going to be held in that jail, but certainly if the impeachment uh, proceedings are started, um, on the basis of the evidence that I've seen, um, you know, there's a strong case for them. However, again, it would go to the Senate, and it would largely come down along partisan lines, and it would probably be viewed as, a, and it wouldn't succeed, just like it wouldn't succeed against the president himself. So it could be viewed as a partisan sideshow. That said, you know, I, I think it's not. I think there's a kind of um, duty on behalf of uh, the Congress to exercise its oversight power, and where 
an attorney general in particular lies to Congress uh, where we can see somebody else as a private citizen goes to jail for that, like in the case of Michael Cohen, to not use their oversight capacity again. The oversight of the executive happens less by the courts than it does by uh, Congress itself. So to exercise that oversight is an important duty. So to my mind, they should proceed with um, impeachment, but there'll be the same political calculations here. And of course, also a perception that he's a sort of sacrificial lamb for the big dog that they can't get. But again, uh, my sense is that the political optics should be secondary to people exercising their constitutional duties and their ethical and moral duties. And in this case, I think that they're clear. On another matter to do with uh, American politics, uh, and this is the the one concern I've always had uh, with our current U.S. president, is that Mm -hmm. the system in the United States is based on a peaceful transition of power. Every four years, you get a vote. Uh, if at the end of the term where a president is voted out, there's a peaceful transition of power to his or her successor, uh, as we saw with uh, Barack Obama to, to Mr. Trump. And I've always been concerned with uh, the level of Mr. Trump's sort of arrogance and ego, whether he could, in fact, ever truly peacefully walk away. And uh, I saw something over the weekend that really kind of uh, raised my eyebrow and spoke to that concern that I've had for a long time. And it was a tweet by Jerry Falwell Jr., uh, who I don't have a lot of respect for, but uh, it was retweeted by the president, basically saying he should have two years added on to his first term as, and I quote here, payback for time stolen by this corrupt failed coup. Uh, now, there are presidential limits enshrined in the Constitution here, Jeff, but what kind of, mm-hmm. I don't know, what kind of spidey sense does that give you when you see that being raised uh, and then retweeted by a sitting president? Well, there's a lot going on there. I mean, not only, I mean, Jerry Falwell Jr., who's a high-profile leader, kind of evangelical um, interests and wing of the Republican Party, I mean, he gets the retweet, but uh, Donald Trump also retweets routinely people you know, who, you know, who her very low moral character, including white supremacists, right? So he's, you know, he'll retweet anybody. And so Jerry Falwell is a prominent person who's well-respected in many quarters. So whatever you may think of him personally, what's alarming is that somebody who's an evangelical Christian would be sort of willing to put their moral stamp or imprimatur on somebody like Mr. Trump, who's clearly not a moral actor. But those are all kinds of political compromises, which we know uh, to be creating the problems that America is in right now. Um, so I, I don't really find, you know, the, the, the fact of that retweet, yeah, that's really, I suppose, disturbing in the sense that the peaceful transition of power, as you say, is the basis for the rule of law and for American democracy. And certainly in America, like FDR was the last president, right, who served more than two terms because two term limits were put in. American uh, Americans amended the Constitution to term limit a president, even on the idea that even if there was a possibility through the, you know, the 22nd Amendment, you know, shut that down, the possibility of ever having a president for more than two uh, consecutive terms. The idea being that democracy requires refreshing, even if people want or desire to have a president sit for a third term. And that's interesting, and you can have a debate about that. But as of now, that's what the 22nd Amendment says. Now, based on Trump's willingness to sort of breach with, um, you know, to, to, to violate the constitutional norms, um, you know, in past, particularly um, all, more unwritten norms, um, this would be a very express kind of bright line uh, that he would cross. But in light of past behavior, I think there are some reasons to be concerned about it. I mean, your listeners will recall that in the 2016 election, nobody expected Mr. Trump to win, including Mr. Trump and his campaign himself. So they were setting up the narrative effectively to claim that a Hillary Clinton win was illegitimate and that it was, an, it was the product of, um, of a, a voter fraud. Um, so that, uh, that, type of, uh, that type of, and so in fact, they were building towards that narrative and were a bit take, uh, you could tell that the campaign was a bit taken off their guard when they found out that they'd won. They'd been preparing to roll out 
um, you know, questions around the legitimacy of the election. So I think certainly, uh, you know, in a future election in 2020, were Mr. Trump to lose narrowly, would one of the strategies that he and some of the people around him were willing to pursue, would it be uh, to claim that the election itself was illegitimate? That certainly, would there be a legal basis for that? Not really, again, unless the evidence could be produced. And even so, that wouldn't necessarily result in him remaining president. So there's very few sort of legal avenues uh, for that to be done. And I think we we should have enough confidence to believe that American institutions could withstand an assault like that. But based on the little by little, piece by piece, sort of wearing down of the public and what their expectations are. Uh, and again, you know, this can also link back to things earlier than the Trump presidency, right? I mean, if you think about the treatment of Merrick Garland, who was the last person who was appointed in the end of Obama's term to be a Supreme Court judge, right? And the willingness of the Senate led by Mitch McConnell to basically prohibit that appointment on the basis that it was an election year and that there would be a new president coming up, hopefully, by the way, a Republican one, which would be able to appoint their own judge to sort of prohibit that appointment on that basis. That was really illegal and unconstitutional. And it set up a kind of standard for behavior. And I think, you know, saying something like, well, we don't have to, we can ignore these term limits or get an extra mulligan on this. I mean, it's not that far from what was done in that last case. I mean, Merrick Garland should be on the Supreme Court right now. Um, so, you know, I don't trust the institutional actors. I don't trust the Republican Party or leaders in Congress. And I don't trust Mr. Trump. And I don't trust um, some of the unscrupulous people, um, you know, who are willing to sort of, you know, um, uh, sort of give him a, a sort of legitimacy, particularly with a, a, group, a, a base of the party, the evangelical Christian base, which should have a greater moral compass than the one that it's exhibiting. But the problem is, and sort of inherent in, in my concern, is that um, there are people who do trust, and when you trot out these, you know, uh, no collusion, the Mueller thing's a hoax, so oh, it's a it's a failed coup, uh, whatever your kind of bizarre tangent is, there's a pool of people in the United States who are going to soak that up, and I find that uh, a alarming and a serious, incredible threat to our to democracy as a whole in the United States. Yeah, well, I mean, it is alarming. And as I've, again, as I say it to my students when, and I've said this on past um, discussions with you, I mean, the idea of the 20th century, of the 19th century, and even of these institutions which sort of grew out of the 18th century, the idea of free speech is that all we have to do is give everybody a platform and then the most reasoned uh, arguments will rise to the top and people will be convinced by the power of their the facts and of the rational impetus behind them and that not obnoxious ideas that aren't based on facts um, will sort of sink to the bottom and be um, shown to be without value in the public sphere. It turns out that with the kind of, I think, probably the kind of um, uh, super-powered uh, effects of, you know, things like money in politics, but also the kind of nature of the media and the combination of uh, social media as well, have created an environment where we can't be so certain of that. It seems like the person who yells the loudest and appeals most to our kind of underlying limbic system or our basis desires can often um, sort of obscure the debate and obscure the power that facts would otherwise have over people's consciousness or that rational uh, points would and create create a kind of both sidesism whereby everybody can view somebody who doesn't have the same views as them as in bad faith and lying. Uh, and that creates a kind of a situation where norms can disappear and the basic uh, good faith that's required for people to adhere to the rule of law and believe in the basic legitimacy of democratic institutions starts to erode. And we know uh, history teaches us that those that that happens in every democracy and in every society eventually at some time. And you have to either renew the democracy, renew the social rules 
or suffer a serious um, setback. So there's no question that we're sort of in that world right now. Uh, one item you wanted to bring up was uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, who mm-hmm. is uh, well known to some people out there, a Pulitzer mm-hmm. Prize winning journalist in his own right, mm-hmm. uh, who apparently suggesting that uh, mainstream Democrats and uh, people like yourself are quote unquote conspiracy theorists for the mm-hmm. way that you have responded or reacted to the Mueller report. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on here? Well, I mean, you know, you got guys like Glenn Grenwald, you have people like Michael Tracy, uh, people who have a kind of um, a high profile on Twitter. Um, and 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 some credibility on the left. I mean, particularly in the case of Mr. Grenwald. I mean, he was one of the people who was sort of instrumental in getting the WikiLeaks um, information out, and a real advocate. And I think for the good, for sort of transparency. And one of the things that people like Gren- Grenwald say, and other people who I would describe as intellectuals and journalists who are on the who are on the far left. Um, I think they've got this wrong, but I think we need to, to sort of engage with what they're saying a bit. What they're saying is, I think, giving them the benefit of the doubt, right? Because sometimes these people are, you know, pretty irksome. They go on Fox News and sort of seem to be supporting, you know, the worst elements of the um, discourse uh, in a way that's not helpful. But um, giving them the benefit of the doubt, I mean, what they say is, hang on a second, you are people like myself who are very concerned about what's happened and how the Mueller reports, uh, what the rollout of the Mueller report has been and, and sort of the last two years of investigating this presidency, they say you're trusting, you know, the FBI, you're trusting the NSA, you're trusting effectively even the more conservative um, elements of the Justice Department. Don't you remember that these were the same people who misled us in the Bush era, who misled us on the story of weapons of mass destruction? Though This is the real deep state. And, um, you know, you may not like Trump, but he was democratically elected. And the Russians always have a pathetic attempt to interfere in our election. So why make a mountain of a molehill? Face the demon in the mirror, which is that Trump was democratically elected and reflects the views of uh, many Americans, and that the electoral system is maybe broken in some way. But don't chase down this Russian bogeyman uh, for years uh, at, at the expense of like looking at the deeper issues. And on their best days, they have a point because we're not talking about things like emoluments or the forms of corruption which have existed in this White House from day one, which I think were immediately impeachable, albeit less sexy than Russia. Uh, and they're right, of course, to say that we shouldn't have a kind of um, overly glossy view of U.S. intelligence. I mean, the fact that James Comey is the same figure who kind of lost the election for Hillary Clinton as the one who destabilized the Trump presidency, that can be inflected or viewed in a variety of ways. So they're not without... Um, some points. However, what I think they miss, and the fact is they're not lawyers, and this is a pro- and this is where I see it's very unlawyerly, is the evidence uh, turned out by the Mueller report is overwhelming. It's not like this was a, uh, a set of investigations that didn't bear fruit. They bore multiple spin-off investigations, including an enormous amount of indictments, guilty pleas, and people very close to the president doing jail time for serious crimes involving a vast cover-up. Um, and so um, that suggests certainly crimes which should rise to the level of impeachment. And what I think the dot that I think people like Michael Tracy and Matt Slebian and Gren Grenwald and others are failing to connect is that if you want, which they want, and people like myself want, to have better oversight of the executive power and a less sort of um, and more transparency, you want uh, Congress to be able to exercise that power. And that's what acting on the Mueller report is all about. And again, the evidence there is overwhelming. And the fact that it was spun in in such a deceitful way, I think, by the U.S. Attorney General is reason for alarm. And I think, you know, um, viewing the Democrats as sort of 
um, being another version of the Republicans in the 90s in their sort of um, chase down of, of Mr. Clinton for lying under oath, I think is misleading. It plays into the Republicans' hands, and I think they've allowed a kind of reasonable discourse, which should occur on the left from time to time to sort of overwhelm the reality of the situation, and as a result have made themselves kind of pawns or stooges you know, of people like Tucker Carlson, who will then have them on their show to make their point in for the average listener in America. It's like, oh, look, there's a Pulitzer uh, Prize winning left wing journalist who takes the same position to me. So I think they're dangerous in that regard. I don't think that those who think the Mueller report, there's a there there. I don't think they're conspiracy theorists. I think the evidence speaks for itself. And I think Mr. Mueller speaking out and saying that's, you know, uh, what I've done has not been clearly, um, you know, uh, uh, channel to the American people in a, in a kind of transparent way is a very serious thing indeed. So I've pushed back on that, um, but I continue to engage with those folks because they keep me on my toes and they keep me from accepting at face value the narrative that's sort of the both sides kind of narrative that's pushed at us by the cable news media. Uh, I want to finish on the home front because there's a couple of uh, fascinating issues that I think play into the, the same core issue. Uh, recently we had uh, the Supreme Court in Saskatchewan ruled that the carbon tax, uh, in response to a, a defiant Saskatchewan provincial government, uh, ruled that the federal carbon tax was in fact constitutional, and mm-hmm. the province, you know, really can't shrug it off or, or, or say no, thank you. Uh, to yeah. some degree, it's the same issue: federal power versus provincial, as we've seen play mm-hmm. out between BC and Alberta on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, and specifically the uh, the case BC's launched, which wants to see some kind of control over the flow of the pipeline and mm-hmm. uh, some clarification about who has responsibility on the environmental protection side. But uh, we're getting increasingly sort of ideological positions that are pushing back against uh, a federal government of the day, in this case the Trudeau government, and sort of challenging sort of provincial and federal powers. Uh, with some of these issues at play, Jeff, how, how do you see kind of this tug-of-war that's going on out there and, and wherein lies the truth for, for common Canadians? Well, I mean, I don't know wherein lies the truth for common Canadians, but I do have an understanding of how the Constitution works and how the division of powers works in this country, right? So um, I do think that they'll, that I agree with the decision of the majority of the Saskatchewan uh, Court of Appeal, and I also think a similar majority will eventually um, resolve any discrepancies between the Provincial Courts of Appeal should they arise at the Supreme Court of Canada, and there'll be a similar division. Not all the judges will agree, but the majority likely will take the same position as that 3-2 decision of the Saskatchewan um, Court of Appeal. I mean, and and so if you look at, um, you know, uh, the history of, of this country and the division of powers, um, you know, the environment was never conceived of as a sort of head of power. It's not significantly given, it's not given over by the name, the environment, either to the provinces, um, um, you know, under Section uh, 92 of the Constitution or uh, to the federal government under Section 91 of the 1867 British North America Act, which divides jurisdiction between both levels of government. So what it's normally been regarded as, as a question of p- falling under a kind of residual uh, federal power to some extent, what's called the Peace, Order, and Good Government Clause. Um, but also it's been acknowledged for a long time that it's what we uh, a subject area which we describe as having a double aspect. It also impacts on many things which are within and properly under to be matters of provincial jurisdiction. So the reality of environmental issues is that they've required and had coordinate and overlapping jurisdictions between two levels of government. However, when we talk about things like natural resources or the environment, um, 
particularly where we talk about transiting between provinces, either internationally or intra-provincially, that's when federal um, uh, power is usually engaged. And we describe under the Peace Order and Good Government uh, uh, Clause in the Constitution uh, as uh, as subject matters which ha- which we describe as having a national concern or a sort of singleness and indivisibility, which requires there to be a kind of federal dimension to their oversight, particularly, again, where there's a kind of internationalization or interprovincial aspect of it. So the idea that one province can control uh, the passage of goods from uh, to another province or to in a way which would interrupt the broader uh, Canadian economy or the power of parliament ultimately to um, regulate on matters of national concern, to my mind, is going to be reinforced by the courts and it won't coincide with the politics of people like Jason Kenney and Doug Ford, who would very much like it to be otherwise. I will, however, say if they win the ne- if the Conservatives win the next election, though, that could ch- just by virtue of changing governments would change the policy, could change the pursuit of all of these lawsuits completely just through policy levers. And of course, if the Conservatives were to take power again and remain in power for some time and start appointing judges, which had a view of confederation which was more conservative, they may one day change the balance of power on the Supreme Court of Canada. That's possible, but we're not there yet. Uh, But it's something we should keep an eye on because uh, the reality is Canada is a country which is sufficiently small and sufficiently um, diffuse in its population that if we are to read the Constitution in such a way as to grant um, less and less uh, power to the federal government and more and more power to the the provinces, and again, there's already much autonomy uh, to the provinces, but if we were to expand that in a way which would allow, um, you know, one or two provinces to sort of bully uh, the federal government around energy policy or around the environment, I think we do a lot to undermine um, the capacity of our governments to actually make policy or do anything. Uh, I was going to it was going to end right there, but something's popped up uh, that I think is worth putting in front of you. Uh, just out from the Washington Post as we speak, you have more than 370 former federal prosecutors in the U.S. have signed on to a statement asserting the special counsel Robert Mueller's findings would have resulted in, quote, multiple felony charges, unquote, against Donald Trump if he were anyone other than a sitting president. What do you think of that? Oh, I mean, I think it's absolutely true. I think what's happened is is that, that in a way, it, Mueller has been a victim of his own conservatism, okay, and of his own kind of, and, and I don't mean that necessarily in the political or ideological sense, but almost his own professionalism, where he said, look, it's Justice Department policy that we do not indict sitting presidents. Therefore, he takes the extra step of saying, I, can't, I don't want to conclude um, that this would be sufficient for an indictment were the president not the president, because then that would be kind of a backdoor way of violating the Office of Legal Counsel directive, by which I believe I'm bound. So I'm just going to lay out the evidence here and say it's not enough to exonerate and sort of give it over to Congress. Now, of course, Justice uh, Attorney General Barr tried to keep it to himself and said that that's my decision. And it's arguable that under the current special counsel um, in, uh, directive that it, it, there, there is a bit of wriggle room there. Nevertheless, it was clear to me on reading it, and the reason for the outrage, I think of many lawyers and that you see reflected there is that the evidence of obstruction of justice is overwhelming and it's absolutely clear that if this this person for any lawyer that the elements are met in a number in about there's about I think there are 10 different instances of obstruction of justice which powerfully made and again they were there in many cases in plain sight 
before the re- report came out. So, yeah, I think that's what's been misleading is to sort of suggest that this is an exoneration. Uh, it's not. And I think what Mr. Mueller wanted, and again, it'll be interesting to see if he testifies, but certainly he's indicating as such with his letter that he wants the American people and Congress to be the judge of whether there's uh, obstruction. And he did weigh in on the question of um, conspiracy, which, by the way, is a crime with a very high degree of requirement of intent um, or what we call scienter, but it's it's totally different than collusion, which is just a political term that has no precise legal meaning. He didn't weigh in on collusion at all. You could say that volume one of the report contains plenty of evidence of collusion. And then on the obstruction side, the re- the plain reading of the report is, here's what happened, this meets the and and you you be the judge. Um, but it's it's not uh, it, it's it's totally misleading to suggest that he's exonerated, and that's why some of there's been some leaks uh, from the former people on the Mueller team. Mr. Mueller himself has taken the extraordinary measure of writing a letter. He's been very silent. He's let the report speak for itself, let his indictment speak for himself, and now you have former prosecutors and other people, uh, civil rights advocates and lawyers, who are speaking out because the the behavior is so obviously obstructive behavior, and presidents have been impeached uh, for much less. Uh, on much less uh, in terms of evidence of obstruction. So, yes, of course, this is not surprising to me, and it's important that we continue to make notes uh, of these facts. Unbelievable. Well, uh, always interesting chatting, and uh, we certainly have no shortage of things to chat about. Jeff, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure. Talk soon, Shane. And that was Jeffrey Myers, lawyer, lecturer up at TRU. We'll take a quick break here on The Woodford Show. On the other side, uh, the advocate for $10 a day child care will be in studio. Radio NL, RadioNL.com, local news now. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning. Welcome back to the Woodford Show. Real pleasure to be joined in studio by probably, I think, uh, one of the more well-known advocates for $10 a day child care, Sharon Gregson, who's in uh, Kamloops today. Sharon, how are you? I'm doing very well. Super pleased to be here on a sunny day. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I hear you ran into a bit of trouble at the airport. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> a severe shortage of rental cars at the Kamloops airport. Yeah, you're not the first person I was mentioning mm-hmm. to you. Uh, somebody else, uh, you reserved a card and there wasn't one there, and that's yes. the second time in a week mm-hmm. I've heard that story. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me first off, uh, what brings you to, to our fair city? What are you doing in Kamloops? I'm, I've come to Kamloops to present to City Council this afternoon. Um, there are now 55 local governments across the province that have passed resolutions supporting $10 a day childcare, the move for quality, affordable childcare in our province. And so I'm hoping that the City Council in Kamloops will decide they want to join that group and be the 56th local government to show their support. Give me a sense here, your sense of what the childcare situation is here in Kamloops. You and I were talking about sort of mm-hmm. the differences between the Lower Mainland and, and Kamloops, but uh, we're not immune from some of the childcare strife that, that has hit some of the, the larger urban centres. What are you hearing on the ground here in Kamloops? Right. So to be honest, it doesn't matter where I travel across this province, whether I'm in Fort Nelson or Haida Gwaii or Nakusp or Kamloops, there's a childcare crisis in every community. So... Fees are too high. It's a little bit relative, but they're high wherever you go. There are not enough licensed spaces. And the mostly women who work in childcare earn poverty wages for the most part. So there's a long road to go to fix the system or to actually have a decent system. And in Kamloops, I asked the local childcare resource referral service what it was like for families to find licensed childcare here. And she told me, well, for infants, it's almost impossible school-age children, it's a nightmare, and there's a little bit more space for three- to five-year-olds. 
You were telling me a shocking story about how some parents or what the lengths they're going to to get their child into a job. And just maybe say that for, right, for on the air right. purposes. What's going on there? Yeah, so school-age child care is sometimes a bit of an invisible problem. People think once your child starts school, you're kind of free and clear, and that's not the case. So when they're in K to grade three or four, you still need before and after school care. And that's very difficult to find here, apparently. And uh, the nightmare stories of kids um, having to take taxis from their elementary school across town to where their parents can find them in after-school childcare space. So, mm. you know, this is um, not a problem that parents should have to deal with just so they can go to work and pay their taxes and support their families. Uh, we need more public investment in growing a publicly funded, publicly delivered childcare system in this province. You're going to talk to, I believe, City Council and the school board as well today? Yeah, I'm meeting with the chair of the school board this afternoon. Okay. If if the city kind of opts in and jumps on board this thing, what would that do? Would it, would it, would, you know, what would that mm -hmm. signal? What happens next? Then? Right. So we have to be very clear this is not about downloading to local government. And no one municipality will ever fix the child care crisis by themselves. It needs provincial funding. It needs federal funding. And so the motion that I'm hoping City Council will pass today is just to say, hey, we recognize as a child care problem, we recognize as a solution, the $10 a day plan, and we want to encourage senior levels of government to step up because families in our community will benefit if they do. So it's not putting council on the hook for spending any money. It's really their way of signaling to the province, particularly because it's mostly a provincial responsibility that says, we want you to continue to invest to fix child care for families in our community. I believe there's two sites where $10 a day is being uh, being used here in Kamloops, mm -hmm. and there's other sites around the province. Uh, give me a sense what you're hearing from from families that are that are experiencing that. Um, you know, is it? I'm assuming there's got to be an aspect of it's life changing for them from a financial perspective. But what are you hearing from people actually in a $10 a day daycare? So there are 53 prototypes of the $10 a day across the province, impacting about 2,500 children. And I talk to families who parents are literally in tears when they talk about the impact it's having in their family, that they can move from having three jobs to one job, um, that parents can actually start buying nutritious food, that they can you know, start to actually save for retirement or, or post-secondary education for their child, that they're they're not surviving on their credit cards anymore. You know, to move to paying $10 a day, which is 200 bucks a month, from paying $1,000 a month or more, um, you know, that is yeah. like winning the lottery. And parents tell me they feel guilty that they are so lucky and that not everybody has that, that, that experience. Now, um, pro and con here, number one, uh, we're a far cry from, from the situation we were in five or six years ago on the $10 a day when you were essentially out in the wilderness saying, hey, we need to do this, and uh, there was a lot of... But now we're, we're more in the positive territory. Uh, the NDP ran heavily with, with that as a major plank. Um, no question they've taken some steps there, but what is your synopsis of what they promised in the campaign uh, to now what we're seeing delivered a year or two into their mandate? Mm -hmm. So it's been just over a year now since they launched Childcare BC, and it's definitely built on elements of the $10 a day plan. They have started to reduce fees in all programs for licensed, uh, licensed care zero to five-year-olds. That's good, but you can't just do it once. You have to keep doing that year after year. They've created sort of a super subsidy 
for families who earn up to $111,000 a year to reduce their fees. Um, and they've created the prototypes. And they've created wage enhancements for early childhood educators. So they're moving in the right direction. We want to make sure, though, that taxpayer dollars are being used to build public assets and not create private assets. So let's build uh, the kind of childcare system that all families can access the same way they access elementary school. Um, so let's. The, the, I guess what our advocacy is doing now is really keeping up the pressure and building momentum so that whoever is in government, they recognize this isn't a one-year splashy announcement, that we need sustained investment so that all families have some benefits. If the government was going to, to signal that that's what they were going to do, um, what would you like to see them do today that they're not necessarily doing that would signal to you that we have a strong plan looking years into the future to achieve this goal? I mean, like I said, they have made some strides here, uh, more than any previous provincial government, but um, is there something that you would like to see them do today that would, to you, send a strong message, hey, they're committed to doing this and they have a plan that's looking forward? Mm -hmm. So I kind of think they've already done that. They've indicated they've got a good plan. We just want to make sure they don't take their foot off the gas. The Minister of State for Child Care, Katrina Chen, completely gets it. She's, she's on board. Uh, and so we want to make sure that Treasury Board and Cabinet are committed to the vision. And it wasn't... You know, with competing priorities for government, we want to make sure that childcare stays in the top three. Sharon, a pleasure. Thank you so much for swinging by, and best of luck in your uh, your chats to the powers that be here in Kamloops. Okay. And uh, I don't know, hopefully you can get some kind of a rental car situation. Yeah, yeah fingers on. crossed. <laughs> but it was great to see you. Thanks yeah, for coming my in. My pleasure. Sharon Gregson, uh, $10 a day childcare advocate uh, in Kamloops to address both the school board and City Council. And that brings to an end today's Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you again right here on NL tomorrow. 1400 Clearwater, 107.1 Shuswa from CHNL in Kamloops. A Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.